On today's episode, Dave interviews Jeffrey Sweet. Jeffrey's a playwright whose works have been produced around the world. His classic book, Something Wonderful Right Away, is an oral history of the Second City and the Compass Players, and has been mentioned by Sharna Halpern and Mick Napier as inspiring them to open up their theaters. On location in New York City, I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. When was this that you interviewed uh, Peter Cook? Well, what happened was that... um, the short version is that I was seeing a lot of off-off-Broadway, and I went to see uh, this play that knocked me on my ass. It was about a bunch of uh, derelicts and um, uh, prostitutes and uh, other rambly people um, in a hotel that's about to be torn down. I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. And I came back a second time, and I saw this guy in the lobby who was sort of hunched over, and I thought, that must be the playwright. So I went to up, up to him, and I said, uh, you're Lanford Wilson, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I want to interview you. And here's where he made his fatal error. He didn't say for whom, because I didn't have anybody to interview him for. I just wanted to talk to him. But if I say, I want to talk to you, maybe I would have gotten 10 minutes. Right. If somebody says, I want to interview you, that means you've got him. Right. So he said, oh, okay. And so I got together with him. I interviewed him. I was right about the play. It turned out to be a play called Hot El Baltimore, which won awards and ran off Broadway for years and years. And I called up uh, Newsday, and I said, no, you don't have to send anybody to... uh, interview Lanford Wilson, I've already done it. And, uh-huh. and he said, well, I'll take a look at it. And I said, and he says, this is good. And he published it, and he says, you want to do some more? I said, sure. So he sent me to interview Richard Rogers. That was fun. Oh, my God. And then oh he sent God. me to interview Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. What, what was the Richard Rogers? Like, where, uh, how old was he? Oh, he was pretty old. He'd already had this uh, operation where they'd taken out his voice box, so he was speaking off over controlled burps. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, how that's what Sandy Meisner had as well? Um, I, I don't know. I, uh-huh. um, um, but uh, the Rogers interview was memorable because after, for me because after we finished the conversation that we were supposed to have and I had enough from my interview, I said, well, thank you. He says, where are you going? I said, well, I've got what I need for that and I don't want to take it. He says, no, why don't you stick around? I realized he was lonely. Oh, my God. Where did he live? Uh, I don't know where he lived, but I was in his offices on, uh, uh-huh. uh, it was like, 57th Street and 5th Avenue, mm-hmm. and uh, he was he was not a very nice man to most of the world. And That's I, what I understand. You know, I mean, he I, I heard not a lot of great stories about him as a human being, but at that moment he was lonely and old and vulnerable, and I was somebody who appreciated his work, and he really wanted me to stick around. Uh, name name the the shows that he he did. Oh oh well, I mean all the Rogers and Hammerstein shows, right, you right. know, Oklahoma, South Pacific, oh uh, um, uh, Sound of Music, uh, Carousel, and then uh, back of the Rogers and Hart stuff. Right, the Rogers and Hart. That's anyway, that's so, uh, oh. but uh, you know, you sometimes catch people at, at those moments. Uh, and I interviewed Jules Pfeiffer, and it mm-hmm. was when I was interviewing Pfeiffer that it began to occur to me that I wanted to read a book about Second City, and that nobody, and I found out that nobody had written it. Right. So I knew that Pfeiffer knew all of these, uh, all of these people, and uh, I said, "Will you will you vouch for me with Mike Nichols and uh, and and Alan Arkin?" He said, "Sure." He said, "But the first person you should talk to is Sheldon Patinkin because he was there for all of it, and he's going to give you the framework." Sheldon's so good at that, and uh, you'll be able to put the puzzle pieces in okay. within the framework. <clears throat> he says, "I'll have him call you tomorrow." So Sheldon calls me. Mm-hmm. He says, "Jules says you." Uh, Jules says that you want to write a book about Second City. I said, yep. He says, uh, have you ever improvised? I said, uh, no. He says, 
He says, no. I said, excuse me? He says, no, you can't write a book about Second City. <laughs> he says, well, if you've never improvised, what the hell would you, <clears throat> what the hell would you ask these people about? Oh. And, uh, and, uh, and I, you know, he must have heard my lower lip quivering over the phone, but he's, he says, all right. He says, I'm in t town. I'm in New York for mm -hmm. a while. I'm going to run a workshop, an improv workshop, and you're, 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 you're coming to it. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, great. You're going to let me audit? He says, no, schmuck audit. Jesus Christ. He says, you're going to get up and do an audit. What the fuck? You know? So uh, so I, I went and, uh, and you know, uh, learned some of the basics with him. I remember Adam Arkin was in my class. Mm -hmm. How old was he then? Oh, Jesus, we were both sprouts, you know. <laughs> remember, the book came out, the book I'm referring to is, of course, that mighty epic, Something Wonderful Right Away. Right, right. Um, the book came out in 78 when I was 28 years old, right. so I must have started working on it when I was 23 or 24. It took you, so you slept around the city... You City. slept around the, the country. country. You, you slept around the country, <clears throat> and were there, was there anybody that you wanted to interview that weren't, you weren't able to get? Yes, Elaine wouldn't talk to me for the record. Uh, in fact, Elaine, Elaine May. Yeah, Elaine May wouldn't talk to me for the record. In fact, Elaine tried to sabotage the book. Um, Why? Because uh, she didn't. She doesn't like. She didn't want to be talked about. She didn't want to. If you take a look, you'll see there are very few interviews with Elaine May. I thought that in um, Van uh, Vanity Fair, Janet, just said that in, what's her name, Janet uh, Coleman, Coleman's uh, Compass. I thought she was interviewed in that. She's no. not interviewed. No. It's all anecdote. It's, it's all, all secondhand. That's right. And and, uh, and also uh, Mike Nichols didn't talk to Janet. Uh, all, uh, um, uh, uh, I talked to Mike, and he said at the end of the interview, he says, "Good." He says, "This is something I should have talked about before." He says, "Now that I've talked about it with you, I'm not going to talk about it anymore." And he's pretty much held to that. There have been occasional stories and anecdotes, but he felt that uh, talking to me was when he was going to say what he wanted to say about all this, right. and then he was going to he was going to move on. He was of, of all the people that I think of all the alumni, Second City alumni. He seems to be the most I'm, I'm going to say enigmatic when it comes to the connection between Second City and what he's done. Like, mm. and, and that explains it to me because he, I, you hardly ever. He doesn't come to the reunions. He doesn't do no. Anything. He do, he, do, he, do, he doesn't come to the reunions, and uh, and some of it has to do with personal politics that I'm <coughs> not at liberty to articulate. I get but, it. But there were there there was there were some people that he was not overly fond of. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, I will tell you, however, uh, you, you you know this that I do this show. Uh, um, uh, you only shoot the ones you love, mm -hmm, which right. is my, my my solo show about my dealings with uh, Paul Sills and Del Close and uh, Nichols and a lot of the other people. It's so good. I haven't seen it. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a laugh riot. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> anyway, but uh, that's partially sprang out of the fiftieth reunion. Mm -hmm. um, I was I remember I was in, right uh, in, in two thousand. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, where was it? Uh, two thousand nine, wasn't it? Two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah. that was when I was fifty as well. So two thousand nine, mm. Second City's fifty. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I, I was I was riding home on the train and we were you know reading stuff online, reading the New York Times article on the on, on the Second City mm -hmm. reunion, <laughs> and uh, there was no mention of Paul Sills or Viola Spolin or. or and and I got this email from from Mike saying, "Did you see that goddamn article in in the New York Times? You know how the, how the hell can they write about Second City and not mention Paul Sills wow. or Viola Spolin mm -hmm. or or you know I mean anybody you know who who wasn't born 15 minutes ago? Right. And uh, well, it did seem to be a celebrity fest. Well, it was uh, yeah." And, and, and there was a lot of good work done, right. and, I, and, I, and I had a swell time, and I've got warm memories, and, uh, and um, 
Does anybody have cold memories? Anyway, uh, I, I was, uh, and at that moment I thought, he's right, people don't know, and if somebody doesn't uh, continually revivify the stories and tell the stories, people are not going to, there are books about improvisation that don't even mention Viola's name. Right. Uh, there are people <coughs> who claim to be teaching improvisation who don't know that, uh, what they owe of, of Viola. Well, I, I think that a lot of it, and I've, I've mentioned it before in the podcast, um, when I was taking classes at Second City, the people that I was taking classes that were my teachers were teachers that were really directly connected yeah, to... They, they were like one generation away. Exactly. Or one, one, one well, certainly generation. Michael and, oh yeah. my God, and Martin DeMott, and then you, you got somebody like... Uh, the people that do know their history, like uh, Jeff Machowski, Jane Morris, those people. Um, but I mean, Martin was just a, such a direct connection over there. Yeah. Oh, the oh, the other people you were asking me that question I couldn't get into the book was that I did an interview with Viola, mm -hmm. and she refused to sign the release. Wow. And I, I, I what I, I did the interview, I did an edit. Uh, because she, uh, my deal with her was that I would do an edit and she would approve the edit and I sent it to her and she made some corrections and I incorporated the corrections and I sent it back to her. And she called me up and she said, Jeff, I've decided not to sign the release. I'm not going to be in the book. Oh my God, that was, must have been crushing. Well, and I said, Viola, why? And she says, oh honey, people have been making money off of me for years and I've decided to draw the line here. I said, you're drawing it in the wrong place. <laughs> I'm not going to make any money. <laughs> it's costing me. <laughs> and she says, well, I've made up my mind. And oh, some, some, man. Some years later, when I was out in uh, L.A. and I was seeing uh, Sills and Company over at, was it, Heliotrope, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Viola comes running up to me and she throws her arms around me. Oh, honey, do you hate me? And I said, well, no, of course not, you know. But, you know, you've given me... Anyway, but many years later, because this is relevant, um, I got... Uh, there's a magazine called Dramatics, which is produced for theater mad high school kids. And I persuaded them to do a series of articles on people that kids new to the theater should know. Mm -hmm. So I wrote an article about Viola, and she ended up, a picture of her ended up on the cover of the magazine. And I get a note from Carol saying, Viola, a cover girl, she'd just be thrilled. This is Carol Sills, <laughs> Viola's daughter-in-law. Uh -huh. And I said, well, if she'd be thrilled, and since now you now control the estate, can I finally run the goddamn interview that I did with her? And she said, yes. And so the next edition of the book will have the interview with Viola. And I had to go back, <clears> and <throat> I, I had lost the version that I had written, so I had to go back and listen to the interview <laughs> that I did with her when I was 24. And she ran me ragged. <laughs> it was hysterical. She, she, you know, she, she's pouring tea to me and being very, you know, you know, oh sweetheart, this and that and the other. She tells me that every single question that I've asked her is dumb. <laughs> now I got everything that I wanted uh, out of the, uh, out of the interview, mm -hmm. and uh, I sent it. I sent it to, uh, to Carol, and she said, "There's stuff in here I didn't know." Right. You know. And, and uh, when did you, how many different printings have you had of that book? Jeez, I don't know. It started off at, uh, uh, as a, a little Avon book. Uh -huh. um, Avon Discus uh, was the name of the, sort of the prestige line of Avon for $2.95. Mm -hmm. And I always knew when people had read it because the pictures had fallen out because right. the binding was so crappy. Right. And then, was it ever in hardcover? Never in hardcover. Uh, it's, uh, and then eventually it moved to something called Limelight Editions, and uh, now it's twenty two ninety five in mm -hmm. the Limelight Editions. But the pictures don't fall out. No, the, the, my, my picture, my book has not fallen out. I love, I mean, those interviews in there, 
the way the way that it's just so uh, so conversational. It's also I think these people just wanted to talk so much. Well, nobody. Yeah, but, but they didn't. Here's the here's the thing that was really interesting to me is that they didn't know that they had been part of something significant until this happened. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, it was at the time a lot of them thought, oh, well, this is just a gig that I had along the way, and mm -hmm. it, it, it took this for them not only to be asked about their own work, but then to read the work of the of the others to realize that they were part of a movement and that they had changed uh, America. Right. They right. Did, certainly changed American theater, film, and television. But I, I, I think in, they, they're a large part of the strand of what happened uh, in the '60s. They were part of that cultural shift. Mm -hmm. that, you know. Uh, uh, that uh, this is characterized by the 60s, one of the key things, and the effect continues on. Right. So, uh, and, and Barbara Harris told me that she kept the book by her bedside so that anytime she was lonely, she could reach for a friend. <laughs> 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 so that was that, that. That was very nice. She was the only, she gave me the only interview that she'd given anybody in 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, Did you ever see her perform? Did you ever see these people perform? But not at Second City or at Second City. No, I. You grew. You you did some time on the South Side, right? No, my dad worked for at the University of Chicago. But you but weren't around then. No, no, no. That, I, how how did that work out? That your dad was uh, a sci scientist. No, no. He wrote uh, he wrote uh, science uh, uh, PR for the for first Northwestern University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, no, my. I, I mean, I saw Second City when I was in high school, like everybody else, mm -hmm. and. Uh, but I, I really didn't quite appreciate what it was until I got to New York. This is part of what I tell my talk about in my show, is that I w was so desperate to flee Chicago, and when I got to New York, and I was studying film at NYU, my film professor was a, a young man named uh, Martin Scorsese, <laughs> and I and, and I had a songwriting class with someone named Paul Simon. <laughs> So you know, I, I had some pretty cool teachers, uh, uh, but um, uh, and I but I started seeing the, the stuff that really spoke to me. I saw you know the Graduate and a New Leaf. I saw these plays uh, by Jules Pfeiffer that Alan Arkin was directing off Broadway, mm -hmm. and I had lost my heart to Barbara Harris. And I started right. wondering where do these people come from? Mm -hmm. Turned out it came from the. They all came from the town that I had just fled. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, okay. Well, I want to read. A, I want to read a book about this. And then it turned out nobody had written it. So I said, you know, with the, the great simplicity of youth, okay, I'm going to write the book. Right. It's it. Uh, what I love about the I'm um, what I love about the book is it is interviews. It's just interviews. Well, it, it's fair, but it, I have to tell you, they're very massaged. Mm -hmm. um, they is, massaged it, or you? No, I did. It? I uh, uh, because I wanted the interviews to have a build, and I wanted them to be coherent. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so this is back in the days before word processing, and I would type up transcripts, and I'd make a Xerox, and then I would physically, with scissors, cut out individual paragraphs, reorder them on my living room floor, <laughs> and retype. And if there was a, if I needed a transition or if I needed something rephrased, I would call them up and say, is it okay if I do this? Right. So it's all their language, but it's really shaped so that it, each one has its own motion, its own, its own it movement. It flows, and each one of those are, but you also really, and that's, I think, that one of the reasons that you really get the flavor for each of the, for all the people that were there. Which of those interviews surprised you the most, where you go, well, I think it's going to be this, but it was that? I guess the <laughs> most surprising on some level was the one with Shelley Berman, because he was still in such pain. He is such, he, he carried around so much pain. And, uh, and he spoke, uh, you know, <clears throat> Very feelingly of you know how much he admired uh, uh, Mike Nichols, and Mike, for his part, didn't mention Shelley at all. Right, 
Well, I think that Shelley was also, Shelley, I don't think that Shelley Berman ever felt, he was a part of Second City, but I don't think, that, he was at Second City, but I don't think he felt well, a part he, of uh, Second Compass, City. Well, Compass, yeah, but I, the, Compass. The, 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 real, the real difference is a, 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 sort of a class educational one. Most of the original people at Compass were either from the University of Chicago or felt comfortable in that milieu, and Shelley really came out of a, you know, working class background. His right. father uh, was, a, was a cab driver, um, and... Um, so uh, and he always felt outclassed by all these people who uh, who could say Nietzsche and uh, right. and actually knew what <laughs> Nietzsche meant, knew that it wasn't a kind of crawler. Uh, exactly. So, uh, the Nietzsche, please. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gluten-free Nietzsche. Yeah. <clears throat> so so you know he was still carrying that with him. I remember I was at the. Uh, uh, you remember the bicentennial? Uh, uh, was an excuse for a lot of people to have kind of big uh, events. And the University of Chicago for the Bicentennial did, for some reason, did a thing on Chicago comedy. And there was a t-shirt that showed a gargoyle uh, howling with laughter. And it said, the University of Chicago is funnier than you think. And they did uh, reunions of members of the Compass in mm -hmm. the Second City. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and performances which were astonishing, some of which I have. But Shelley was so thrilled to be invited by the University of Chicago to do an evening that not only did he perform for about three hours, he held a reception on the stage for the audience. It was as if he, this was his victory. Right. That, uh, that the University of Chicago had finally accepted him and he was going to be gracious in victory by hosting a celebration of their capitulation. <laughs> But yeah, and then I ended up, you know, he ended up being in a play of mine called The Value of Names, playing a blacklisted actor, and uh, uh, and he was marvelous, but it was, uh, that, the bitterness of this man, uh, feeling like uh, he was on the outside because he was blacklisted, that correlated with uh, Shelley's feeling of uh, isolation, being in the company of all these University of Chicago wits, and running and running and running and never feel that he quite, feeling that he quite caught up. There was an interview that he did with Mark Maron where he just, just, uh, said straight up, Bob Newhart stole my bit. And he was very bitter about that. Really, really well, bitter about that. You know, it's, 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 uh, it, it's hard to say because, you know, Ruth Draper did conversations on the, tele, uh, on the telephone 25 <coughs> years before that. Right. So. Um, I don't think anybody owns that, but I think that if you come up, if you're one of these people that think the world is out to fuck me over, then you're going to see that in certain. Well, things. he's had he's such uh, he's he's had a he's had a rough time. I'm not going to go into stuff in in in, in, his, in his personal life because it's his. But uh, um, if, if if I had had to put up with uh, some of what God uh, hit me with, I think at one point he was doing the Neil Simon play God's Favorite, which was you know that funny funny play based on the Book of Job. Right. And, <laughs> and uh, he's I, the perfect I, person for that. Well, and I think I think he identified very strongly with that. Right. Uh, with with that thing, but the the the, the unanticipated effect <laughs> of uh, of something wonderful right away is people read it and it corrupted them. Both Mick Napier and Charna Halprin said that uh, they read the book and they said, this is what I want to do with my life. Mm -hmm. We've said this on the record. So, mm -hmm. um, um, and so both uh, I.O. and Annoyance came out of them reading this book. Right. Uh, Charna said she had read the book. She was driving along uh, somewhere and she all of a sudden pulled off the side of the road and said, oh, this is what I have to do. And she, it occurred to her to approach Dell because she'd read uh, um, Dell's uh, chapter in the right. book. Right, right. Uh, she, had, she had approached David Shepard first, of course. Of course, that whole thing. That, that but went the, down. 
And Mick, uh, I, I was watching uh, that wonderful documentary, Second to None. And at what the, a great documentary that And is. at the end of it, he says, I, well, I'm here because I read something wonderful right away. And mm -hmm. I thought, yes, corrupted another one. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I say this in my show, but, you know, if, 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 if I'm responsible, even indirectly, for uh, the annoyance in I.O., that means that I'm also uh, responsible, by extension, for um, um, UCB and the Magnet and the Pit and, right. and all these people. I am an, the illegitimate grandfather, and you know they never call, they never write. <laughs> but, <of course. laughs> but it's also you're. But you're also when you look at that, you're responsible for let it, for uh, let's see the voices of the people that came from that. So well, that's the that, institution. That, that's that's the important thing. Right. Is because a lot of those people never talked at, uh, at any length after that about uh, the work they did, uh -huh. um, uh, or. And of course, some of the people were famous for being inarticulate, like Paul Sills, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who, who was able to combine uh, irritation with uh, inarticulateness to, uh, in a, to an epic degree. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, so that was very that was uh, that was very satisfying. But you know, I came to the. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great, I, you know, lover of improvisation, and I occasionally teach as well. I'm teaching at Wagner College. But I came to it largely because I was interested in, um, I'm not a purist. There are some people who think that if you don't, don't just pull it absolutely out of, your, uh, out of the air or out of your ass, depending what kind of material you're doing. Right, <laughs> and sometimes out of your ass is out of the air, right? Yeah, that, uh, that it's not improv. And I remember that, uh, that this started with uh, David Shepard wanting, wanting to do plays about Chicago and right. nobody was writing them. Right. So they were improvising from... Um, uh, from scenarios, and I've always been interested in how do you get uh, replicable material out of uh, out of improvisation. So I'm, you know, primarily known as a, a playwright, and I like to develop material. I like to develop plays sometimes from an improvisational base. And every summer, uh, we've done this for three years now. Uh, I've been lucky enough to find uh, uh, somebody who has sponsored uh, uh, me to be able to call other people who are both improvisers and uh, and writers. And we take a week. Uh, it's usually in Chatham, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, I mean Dan, uh, Dan and uh, Deb Castellaneta. Uh, Ron come, West did it. Ron West did it a right. couple of times. Right. Uh, I think he met his lady friend there. As a matter of fact, I know he met his lady friend there, mm -hmm. uh, Catherine Butterfield. Mm -hmm. um, David Sinker. Um, right. Oh, Dave Sinker went there too. Yeah, he came. Uh -huh. um, uh, the, the, uh, Sherry Steinkellner and I've suddenly blanked on her uh, husband, for the, mm. which makes me feel incredibly stupid. But they they came out of the Groundlings. They were original Groundlings, mm. and they wrote uh, uh, Cheers for years. So uh, there have been a lot. Oh, and uh, 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 Mike Dakota from um, uh, Improv Boston was there this uh -huh. last summer. Uh -huh. <coughs> and, uh, you know, there's some people well-known, some people not terribly well-known, but the idea is that everybody's really interested in using this as a way of getting uh, plays started, right. screenplays started. Right. And the deal is, if you come, if you're in something that somebody has suggested, they own it, and if right. uh, somebody's in something you've suggested, you own it. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea is that we're, we're resource for each other, right. um, and people have been real good about that because that's the only way that you can the only way you can do it. Otherwise, if people say that line's the funniest line in your play, well, and I want twenty, it's one of the things. At Second City, one of the worst jobs that you can have is the job of the director, where you are really you're a director. You're, uh, you're a director, you're a teacher, you're a head writer, and someone will get a laugh. And a breath mint. And a breath mint, <laughs> the sparkling drop of Retson. So it's like you're all those things, and when somebody gets a laugh, nobody says, my director wrote that. 
uh, you can just sit back and go, that laugh, that's my laugh. Uh, but there's this sense, there's not a sense of, there's, not, there's a different sense of propri proprietary what, ownership at yeah. Second City. Well, people, <clears throat> simply, people simply assume that whoever said the, said the funny line created the funny line. Right. And sometimes it's true and sometimes it isn't. Right. And at a certain point, if you can't let that go, then that you shouldn't be doing this. I think that a lot of people who come to Second City take it, just go, this isn't my material. I mean, it's my material, but it's not my material. Because of the, the group mind, the group coming together of all that, the Gestalt. Yeah, well, the original name of Second City before they changed it was the Borg, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that Michael, Mike Myers, uh, there's, there are certain people that have taken the material that they've gotten from Second City and brought it to stage. I think that uh, Colbert did something. Uh, with uh, Colbert and Carell did something. I think that Tina and uh, Rachel did uh, their uh, mother-daughter, right, mother right, wicked, wicked uh, uh, on TV, didn't they? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, but I got to tell you that is one of the greatest sketches. Well, and what's marvelous about that documentary is they get the first version of it. They had the camera running the first time they uh, they started working. Right. You could watch the evolution of it. That is it. That if if people were to say, okay, videography, what? Understanding that it's almost impossible to catch this stuff on, 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 on film or video, which are the ones to watch? Second to None, which is uh, now in a, um, uh, a re-edited version that is longer and doesn't have the narration. Oh and, boy, and that narration was hard to, it was just so, it was hard well, to. Well, that's, that's gone, plus there's a, there are extra tracks, so there's a DVD, there's extra video of uh -huh. complete scenes, it's terrific. Um, uh, uh, trust us, this is all made up, the TJ and Dave right. uh, DVD is sensational. Unfortunately, there is no DVD of a session with the committee, mm -hmm. which is uh, uh, the, the great committee show from 1968. And um, if you can get your hands on it, it's never been done on DVD, the American Masters uh, show about Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Those are the four videos that I would say are the essentials. Right. And uh, unfortunately, two of them aren't available. Well, so. I, I, when it comes to the committee, and I think that now, I know that um, San Francisco is putting together a, a documentary about yeah. that. But it's one of those, like, people don't, just don't know about the committee. No, well, the, the, the way they do know it about it is indirectly. They were right. in a movie called Billy Jack, for which they were never paid, I gather. Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, if you can get your hands on the old uh, Smothers Brothers shows, and a lot of the old committee material ends up there because a lot of them ended up as players and writers on the show. Right. So they very much informed that. The big difference between the committee and Second City was the Second City was largely people who come through the University of Chicago, mm -hmm. and they were talking about alienation. The committee was more radical, and a lot of the people had dropped out of out of university. They were, they were closer to street people. Right. Uh, many years ago, there was a book by a guy named Richard... I think it's either Richard K. Dorson or Richard M. Dorson called mm -hmm. America in Legend. And he was <coughs> positing that there were four different eras of uh, American folktale. Uh, one was a, a, a religious dominated era about the witches, and what, another one was about the democratic impulse, you know, Davy Crockett, and there was another one that was the industrial impulse. And this guy theorized that uh, in the 60s we hit the fourth age which was uh, dealing with subjects like, you know, great drug deals and people uh, figuring out clever ways to get out of, uh, out of the draft. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, he said, this is a new, new subject matter for folks. And I wrote to him and I said, you're, you're teaching at Berkeley across the bay at the committee. The subject matter of what you're talking about is on those stages. 
And he wrote me back and he said, yeah, my wife keeps telling me that. I suppose I should go see them. <laughs> but it, at that point, I thought, well, look, what happened was the committee had turned into a kind of folk theater for its time. Right. And in a certain way, Second City was, was, is that as well. Well, that's, that's it at its best, that it's, a, it's expressing on stage what is really going on in the mind and the heart of the, uh, of, of the audience that the audience hasn't itself recognized. That's right. what the stage is right. largely for, is to... Um, <coughs> Is to, is, is, to, is, is to put in front of us what we're really thinking and experiencing, but we hadn't quite looked at it that way. Right. Which is what Shepard was up to when he wanted to, uh, with the compass, he wanted to put stories on stage that were about the audience that the audience had never seen before, and people saw stuff there. Now the material doesn't look revolutionary uh, because it's been so assimilated, but the stuff about uh, um, you know, sexual politics that we mm -hmm. take for granted as subject matter now was not uh, on stage at the time. Right. Uh, the Nichols and May scene in the, the front seat of the car there was uh, revolutionary for right. its time. Right. My God, he's trying to get laid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. You know. It, it, and, and that's so true that, uh, that it is the folktale of that particular, it's a snapshot of that particular era and the social politics of that particular era too. And I think that, that when I did the 35th uh, anniversary show, Sheldon brought out the archives from the entire, we picked things. Yeah. And so there were scenes, and we picked things from uh, the, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, yeah. and a lot of it was interesting, but it wasn't funny. And that was my issue with that show, is to look at it and go, okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Some of it, some of it is both interesting and funny. I know. If, if you go back and look at the, or look at or listen to the Nichols and May stuff, my mm -hmm. God, most of that stuff holds up so strong. It's right. just genius material. But is so the, was the Nichols and May stuff. Uh, uh, but they they also wrote outside of Second City. Well, I mean, they the, most of the great sketches started uh, uh, at the Compass, mm -hmm. uh, and they polished them uh, at the Compass. And then they, when they had their Broadway run every night at the end, they would uh, they would do an improv based on audience suggestion. They also had a radio series for uh, a Monitor, I guess it was, and they and they would improvise uh, for that. Um, but they didn't write right. Yeah, they they sat and they improvised, and then, right. they, then they edited together the uh, the tapes. Right. If you, the Nichols and May look at doctors, uh, not a word of that was written down. They mm -hmm. improvised at a microphone, and then mm -hmm. they. Uh, then they uh, they edited together back in the days when editing meant, uh, you know, making cuts with, with tape razor and with razor blades <laughs> and stuff like that. God, do we have? Are we spoiled? Did you have? <laughs> did you have anybody helping you write? Like, not write the book, but put put the book, put something wonderful right away together. Oh, I, there, at, at different points, I I, I, I I paid some people miserably. Uh, to transcribe some of the interviews, but then I would uh, read their transcriptions against listening to the tapes to make certain that they got them right. right. I just did something like that again this year. I've got a new book coming out about uh, the Eugene O'Neill Memorial Theater Center. I had to interview a hundred people. Mm -hmm. um, How did you do that? Because I've got I've, I've got a bunch of interviews that I want to uh, transcribe. Did you did you transcribe them? I, I transcribed some of them, but most of them were transcribed by uh, by uh, interns and students at the O'Neill Center. Uh -huh. And then again, I would, uh, if, if I had doubts about uh, uh, 
the veracity of the of, of the transcript, and mm -hmm. I would be able to go back to the original. But I, I talked to like a hundred people in a year, right? You know, including not that I met him face to face, but including Robert Redford and uh, and Michael Douglas because they had all they had connections to. My book is coming out, by the way, in May about the O'Neill, and, and what's I've it seen the cover. Uh -huh. It's called uh, you know the O'Neill. <laughs> And underneath it, you know, in nice big letters is by Jeffrey Sweet, and mm -hmm. then underneath that in smaller letters, forwards by Michael Douglas and Meryl Streep. And it's the only time in my life that I will ever have better billing than Michael Douglas <laughs> and Meryl Streep. <laughs> I still haven't met uh, Meryl Streep, but she wrote a lovely uh, forward. So did she read the book, or what? Or she just talked about no, it? No, she just wanted to talk about how important uh, the O'Neill was to her. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because uh, mm -hmm. there's a parallel between this and the Second City book, mm -hmm. because both of them were theaters that, uh, or theater, theatrical institutions that resembled nothing that came before. Right. And interestingly, uh, also a couple years ago, the Theater Hall of Fame, uh, which uh, you know honors people who've done uh, uh, major things in the theater, and their names are put up on the on a, a wall in golden letters and stuff. Mm -hmm. That <coughs> year, two of the honorees were George White, who founded the O'Neill Center, and Paul Sills. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been agitating mm -hmm. to get Paul into the Hall of Fame while he was alive. So that he could have the satisfaction of saying, eh, it's okay. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> he doesn't seem like he was a very happy man. I, I, I think he needed, this is, this is my feeling about it, because I got to know him pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, well, somewhat well. I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, I think he needed the games because uh, he, didn't, he couldn't uh, talk to people without a structure. Uh -huh. uh, he couldn't make small talk. So the games gave him a structure, and the, and the work gave him a structure to deal with people, because mm -hmm. otherwise he, he, he didn't know how, he couldn't be real comfortable. Years ago, some years back when uh, Mike Nichols did uh, his film Charlie Wilson's Wars, this is a story mm -hmm. I tell in my show, but yeah. um, Nichols, because I'm one of his 3,000 closest friends, uh, invited me to the screening of uh, the first screening in New York, mm -hmm. and uh, afterwards we were at this party, and Nichols came, came up to me, and we talked about the film a little bit, and then he said, "Listen, I'm going to ask you for a favor." I said, uh, "What?" He says, "Well, uh, uh, Paul Sills, you know, one of my best friends. He's been calling me a lot lately. It's time for us to have one of our marathon conversations, but he doesn't understand. I'm in show business, and I'm opening a movie, and I cannot talk to him for three hours, which mm -hmm. is how long we'll talk if I get on the phone with him." And if I try to call him and say, hey, can I call you in a couple of weeks? We're going to talk three hours then. So right. could you do me a favor? Could you call him uh, tomorrow morning and tell him that in a couple of weeks when the movie is uh, over, you know, for good or for ill, uh, I will call him and we will have the conversation that we're supposed to have. Mm -hmm. You know, is, is, that, is that cool with you? And I said, sure. You know, I mean, how, how many times you know, do, you, do you have the pleasure of doing a favor for Mike Nichols? <laughs> you know, he's, he's done enough favors for me over the years. Mm -hmm. So I... Uh, I called Paul the next day, and you have to understand that uh, Paul's always, always, always sort of dealt with me. It's sort of did we, did 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 we talk? Have, have we mentioned because uh, a lot of people don't know the history that Paul Sills is Viola Spolin's son? Viola Spolin's son, and he also uh, essentially was the the originator of Second City and right. was the one of the major directors at the Compass. I mean, he's he's Abraham. Right. Okay. Right. So, uh, and anyway, going back. So, um, uh, but my relationship with Sills was, I mean, he took, he, he, he found a practical application for Viola's theories. Right. And also created uh, the story theater, which also had a ripple effect that has gone on to plays like Nicholas Nickleby and Grapes of Wrath and Ragtime and whatever, and techniques that he invented were incorporated into, uh, into the larger culture. 
So, but uh, at one point I did a play called American Enterprise, which won surprises. It was uh, here in New York. It was on Chicago subject matter, and it borrowed techniques from story theater. And I invited him to come to see it, and afterwards we're having a coffee. He said, well, thanks for the ticket. He said, um, but why, why'd you invite me to this? And, and I said, well, I guess I just wanted to thank you for what I've learned from you. And he said, gee, I can't imagine what. <laughs> I thought, oh, thank you, Maple. Can, can, can we remove this steak from my gut at this point? Oh, so anyway, it, it's all these. But he didn't. He didn't mean it in a. No, no he never meant, meant to injure. It's right. Just, it's just a. You know, it was a. It was a kind of functioning Tourette syndrome. Right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so uh, I'm calling him up because Nichols has asked me to. Right. And I say, Mike has asked me to call. He says, you know, he'll call you in a couple of weeks. He really wants to talk to you, but he's got to open this movie. And he says, oh, well, that's okay. And then, for the first time in uh, ever, I'm on the phone with Sills, and we're talking a little bit. And he says, you know, sweet. And he says, I've been thinking about that book you wrote. I said, yeah, preparing myself for another steak. And he says, I think you made a contribution. Uh, and I started, you know, I, I started to choke up. Right. It's the first time the marriage ever said anything overtly nice to me. <laughs> I said, why, why don't you come out and visit sometime? Oh, in Wisconsin? Yeah. Uh -huh. And he died three weeks later. <laughs> uh, I wonder if he was, that he was deciding at that moment to kind of seal up a bunch of different relationships. I don't know. You know, I was, I was very fond of him. I, mm -hmm. I, 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 I tell a story, which I won't tell now, about him, the two of us meeting the great Soviet director, Sergei Bondarchuk. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the guy who directed the eight-hour War and Peace, which is one of the greatest movies and, and one of the most expensive movies ever made. And uh, we're sitting there with the, the translator, and Bondarchuk is thrilled to meet me because I've actually, somebody who's seen his movie many times. And uh, the, the uh, interpreter is saying, so here we are, we are Russians, you can see that we are human, we're human. And he says, now you, you must come to Russia and you will see that we too are human. And Paul says, well actually my grandparents are from Russia. I said, so are mine. The interviewer said, come home. <laughs> what we didn't mention was that our grandparents left Russia about 18 inches ahead of the pitchforks that their grandparents were carrying, but we thought, you know, why bust up a good party? <laughs> but I, but that, that moved into some, to a larger thought, which is if you take a look at the people who created satiric comedy, the whole wave, not only improv, but, uh, you know, uh, Brooks and Reiner and Tom Lair mm -hmm. and Lenny Bruce and uh, Mort Saul and all these people, and they all came out within five years in the mid-50s, and most of them are the children or grandchildren of uh, uh, Russian or Eastern European Jews fleeing the Cossacks. Right. You know. Uh, my theory is that the children and grandchildren of the people who fled the Cossacks looked at the McCarthy era and saw Nixon and Karl Mundt and these other apes and said, oh, look, Cossacks have learned how to tie Windsor knots. Right. And these were the new Cossacks, and since they didn't have sabers and they didn't have horses to trample you underfoot, we could mock them, and I think that that was the explosion that started uh, the wave of satiric theater uh, that, that we're still riding on. It was a response to the children of, uh, of the people who'd been uh, chased by Cossacks uh, uh, to the new Cossacks. Right. So uh, right. It, it was an interesting thing to learn. That's and, really and it had something to do with, my, I realized it had something to do with my interest in this, because my grandmother remembered hiding in the cellar from the Cossacks. 
My grandmother, the family, uh, the Cossacks were coming. The family was reasonably well off. They had a non-Jewish maid, and the Cossacks were coming. And these people, they didn't just bust up the presents at the wedding like a fiddler. Right, they right. killed you. Right, right. So the maid said, go down to the basement. Let me see what I can do. And the, they went down to the basement. The, the Cossacks came to the door. Where are the Jews? And the maid said, Jews? I wouldn't allow any filthy fucking Jews in my house. And they believed her, and they went away, and that's why you and I can talk today, is right. because they didn't kill my grandmother. Oh, my God. And so your grandmother told this story to you? Yeah. Well, uh -huh. my, my grandmother told my, the story to my mom, and uh -huh. my mom, you know... Uh, Added told, the word fuck to, to the story. Uh, <laughs> abs abs absolutely. <laughs> it, 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 you know, the older they get, the freer they are with their fucks. They've been liberated to, uh, you know, the stuff they used to swatch you for, they now say themselves. I remember um, when I was, as my grandmother once, my bubby from Russia, I was like, where's Zadie? And she goes, since I was older, I remember that he was in college. And she goes, he's taking a shit. I'm like, did I just hear you say that? Grandma! <laughs> did I just hear you say that? That's crazy. Yeah. I love that, that the ripple effect. What you're talking about, um, uh, you know, coming here and, and how uh, uh, we were, how now we can have, or at that time, we can um, face um, power with words. But I think an awful lot of it is, and, and we, haven't, we haven't talked about this an enormous amount is the degree to which, it, uh, even though there are you know non-Jewish people, and certainly uh, Tina and, uh, and, uh, and and Colbert are not Jewish, right? But the degree to which this was formed out of a Jewish sensibility, out of uh, uh, out of um, you know, if people are going to beat up on you and you can't beat them up back, at least you can <laughs> mutter ironic things under your breath as they're beating the shit out of you. Right, right. Because right. if everything, and it also goes, if everything's okay. Who wants that story? Mm -hmm. Who wants to know the story? And then they, everything was fine. Because for me, I feel like, and, and being online and the, the access to information that we have right now, I just want to scream at certain shit. And I know that my venue is often Facebook. Mm -hmm. You'd be able to go, this isn't okay for me. And I think that Second City, and certainly the training that I've had as well, has said, this is your voice. Use your voice. Mm -hmm. Speak your voice. What is it that, that's your point of view? And it's just so important. Well, to me. it goes back to what I said. What, what I said to Dorson, you know, when his book came out. After the, I said, well, maybe, maybe the committee is a, a kind of American folk theater. Mm -hmm. And I think that Second City, at its best, is uh, and improv is. It, it's coming genuinely out of the consciousness of the people. I'm not about to sing the international here, right? Because you know, I'm not. I, I don't. I'm not, in fact, a socialist. Right. But, noted. Uh, noted. But uh, uh, but I. I there are some things that I think should be controlled by the public as opposed to the private market. Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, on the other hand, the reason why you have a, a, a lovely fancy recorder is because of the private market. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think that I, 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 I don't know. I mean, for me, I don't feel maybe I don't even know that I felt this way when I was younger. Like uh, corporations are. Well, I probably did feel that like corporations. And corporations were evil. are evil. <coughs> and they've I do feel it. More and more <laughs> right. evil, and they've concentrated more and more power. And right. they now, you know, eight or ten corporations now control most of the information in this country and most of the products. And they can decide that the well, that's that that's for that's for the young socialist hour <laughs> when, 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 we, when we do that recording. But uh, <laughs> or the old socialist hour. Uh, but I, I think it's important to for people to remember you don't have to be Jewish to do this, mm -hmm. but it certainly helped to get to get it started. A lot of it came out of um, paying back the Cossacks, right? 
Right. Of course, the irony is the only. Re <laughs> I just put this into a play, but the only reason anybody remembers Cossacks is that there are Jews writing plays cursing the Cossacks, exactly. <laughs> keeping them alive, like keeping them alive, but by hating them. There, I, <laughs> so, I, I can also imagine. I, I, although you could say that Putin is still a, is another Cossack. Right. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that there was uh, you know where, where a grandmother would go uh, where you would mention somebody's name to go because you do bring it back up whenever you talk about it. You do keep them alive. Of course, of course, they ended up calling each. Other Cossacks. That landlord, he's a Cossack. You <laughs> fucking Cossack. <laughs> uh, but it's also I love I love watching. Uh, I love you bring up Fiddler and Fiddler on the River. It's like that is just an awesome movie. That movie is a. Did you see the play here? Oh, I, I saw it several times here, and also uh, you, you 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 can touch my hand. Uh, <laughs> the guys who wrote it were, from, were friends of mine. I mean, the Joe Stein and uh, Jerry Bakagan now. But, mm -hmm. uh, Sheldon Harnick is a very close friend, mm -hmm. and uh, I was talking to him about that and about how it happened. And to a large degree, have you ever heard of a place called Tamament? Because you really should know. Tamament. That sounds familiar. To me. Tamament's terribly important. Uh, Tamament was a, um, a, a summer camp that was put together by a sort of socialist-leaning organization. And every summer, um, um, people, young people would go to this, this camp, and they would put on shows. And the shows got more and more professional, and they hired a man named Max Liebman to put on a new review every week. And Max Liebman had a tremendous eye for talent. And he discovered Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca and Danny Kaye and a guy named Jerry Rabinowitz who changed his name to Jerome Robbins. And an enormous amount of the material they did was mocking the accents of their parents and grandparents. Mm -hmm. They did. Uh, there was a, a, a one some, one year in New York. There were two shows that were black versions of the Mikado, the hot Mikado and the swinging Mikado. So the Tamament they did the Yiddish Mikado, <laughs> which apparently was very funny. But uh, but it was basically these people mocking the accents and the and the uh, the greeniness of their uh, you know you know the, uh, of their. Uh, uh, parents who hadn't quite gotten their sensibility out of the old world and still spoke with thick accents. And ultimately what happened was Jerome Robbins, who had worked at Tamament, Jerry Bach, who had come from Tamament, Joe Stein, who worked with Max Liebman when Liebman did his next thing, which was a little thing called Your Show of Shows. Right. He, uh, that's oh. Tamament was his preparation for doing uh, Your Show of Shows mm -hmm. and Sid Caesar. And, <coughs> and Tamament also was early training ground for um, uh, Neil Simon and Woody Allen wrote a Tamament. There were, there's a Tamament archive where you can read their early, very unfunny sketches. Um, but uh, it was a huge influence because from Tamament to your show of shows and the various things that Liebman produced, it's most of the great comic writers. It's Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. It's um, uh, uh, Michael Stewart. It's um, uh, the people who went on to write uh, All in the Family and mm -hmm. MASH and a lot of the other things. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary uh, uh, legacy, but between the people who came out of Tamament, out of your show of shows, and something that was like Tamament called the Green Mansions, all those people, uh, all the people who wrote and created Fiddler on the Roof, came out of those places, and this was their apology wow. to their parents and grandparents for having mocked them at Tamament and uh, at uh, Green Mansions. After having declared their liberation from the, the, the culture that they were embarrassed by, mm -hmm. now they took a look at it and realized what these people had been through and what they owed them. And this was Fiddler on the Roof is their apology to their parents and grandparents. Because Jerome Robbins, you know, his name was Jerry, uh, Jerry Rabinowitz, and he was embarrassed initially by being Jewish. Mm -hmm. So he changed his name to Robbins, and this was his way of 
kind of making it up to them. They, right. you know, they all knew that this was their acknowledgement. And they had no idea what they had accomplished. But if there is... The people that put together... Yeah, there. no, mm -hmm. when they were putting it together, they were just... Remember, this was the first overtly Jewish show. Right, right, it right. Was the, and, 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 nobody, and they had a terrible time raising money for it because mm -hmm. people said, who's going to want to see this once you finish the Hadassah groups? Who's going to come see this show? Right. Well, of course, wherever they put it on, it's uh, people have met it at their culture. They put it on in Japan, and somebody said to Sheldon, did they understand this show in America? And he said, yeah, why? He says, well, it's a very Japanese show. Of course it is. Yeah. So, but they, but if any show has has achieved, Fiddler has gone from being an American cultural, you know, commercially put together project to having a unique status in that it's, it's almost become a sacred show in the sense that this is what you, this is now how you educate Jews about where they came from. This is this is the image of, of what is. It also happens to be one of the best written shows in in, in history. Um, I, did you what did you see? What did you feel when you first saw it? Did, did you see it when? What, did you see it I when it first Mistel came out? It. What's that? I saw Zero Mistella. I, I went. I saw it standing room. And then, and also, when I, it was still running when I came to college here, and I was a member of the Dramatist Guild, and every six months they would offer free tickets to members of the Dramatist Guild <coughs> to fill out the back of the house. Mm -hmm. And so every six months I went back to see Fiddler, and I sat there watching it saying, God, is this thing put together? And it keeps, I mean, Chris Jones in Chicago just uh, reviewed another production, and he said, you know, I realize I've seen five productions of Fiddler on the Roof this year. And he said, and every time... It's, it's it swept me away. He says, I, this may be the, the, the great American musical. Uh, of course, Isn't that funny? Of course, all this is tied in by, you, you probably don't know this, but Sheldon Harnick was married to Elaine May for about 15 minutes. I, that's why that name sounds familiar. Sheldon Harnick wrote uh, Fiddler and also wrote She Loves Me. Right. And Sheldon worked with uh, uh, Barbara Harris and Robert Klein and Alan Alda and Mike Nichols on... Um, um, the apple tree, mm -hmm. which was a vehicle for, for Barbara. Right. And in between the matinee and the evening shows of the apple tree, uh, Alan Alder used to teach improv, and he would also do uh, um, experiments in, uh, in ESP to see whether or not improvising increased one's ESP. <laughs> and he's a, he believes he, you know he believes that it does. Right. And it does because it's an extra sensory. But this, but this is this is all this is all part of this community. I mean, we 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 seem to digress. But to, you know, I mentioned Sheldon, and it takes us right back to that community. Well, keep in mind that the the podcast is called ADD Comedy, <laughs> okay. so of course we're going to digress. But 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 he and he and he and Elaine. I mean, I I I think it was it was a, it was a short marriage, and mm -hmm. they're, they're now friendly again. Mm -hmm. um, but. Um, you know, it comes out of the, the, the same roots of, of people fleeing an oppressive culture and, uh, and um, uh, celebrating their culture and dealing with the, ba the bastards who tried to uh, uh, <laughs> kill, them. kill them. Yeah, right. Uh, it's it. You, and when you listed all those people, uh, Mort Saul and all the Lenny Bruce and all those people, what an amazing uprising and changing of the landscape of comedy and not just comedy, but not just comedy, but also uh, 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 people's relationship to the culture that we live well, in. Well, it's an interesting thing you say that because one of the things that David Steinberg says in Something Wonderful Right Away, which I think is really useful, he said the comedy before uh, this uprising 
united an audience in genial contempt of the characters. You know, we were amused by uh, Jack Benny's stinginess. Right. We were amused by Lucy's desperation to get into show business. The audience was unified. In the 50s, this kind of comedy divided the audience. Mm -hmm. If you laughed, you were hip. If you were offended, well, fuck you, you weren't part of our audience anyway. Right. You know, so when Lenny Bruce came up, people either, you know, laughed with him and, and denoted to each other, we're hip. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and we had Tom Lehrer records in the house, and my parents said, you know, you can enjoy these records, but do not sing this, these songs outside of the house. And everybody hates the Jews. Yes, you know, the right? masochism tango. People are going to wonder where, where you got this. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, wait, wait, wait. wait. Hold up. Am I, uh, yeah, that's okay. Keep going. Okay. Anyway, uh, uh, so uh, this idea of comedy that divided the audience, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that I first heard from Steinberg, I think is really important. Because what happened is that if you were hip enough to laugh, you were, A, A it was self-congratulatory. Hey, I'm hip. I'm laughing at the stuff the musicians laugh at. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Because the musicians know what's really funny because they've heard it all. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, uh, politically, was terribly important because as you sit there and you're laughing at you know jokes about these oppressive bastards and Joe McCarthy and Nixon and all these hideous people, um, you realize you're not alone and it's the beginning of a political consciousness. Oh, it's not just me grumbling in my room. There are a batch of others who think that these people are assholes. And let's band together and do something about it. So, no, it doesn't change people's minds. I don't think, although I think that maybe John Stewart is, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a, 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 an effect of, of, of uh, the people who keep watching that. I think he's having actually some kind of an effect. Um, well, he, one of the things about John Stewart, he says, I'm not, I'm not news, I'm entertainment. Yeah. Um, and yet what ends up happening is he becomes news. Well, and I'm not saying because of his, his point of view, but what he's doing is he's making us look at these things. And I also think that... Well, that, the, the jokes only work if you know what the jokes, what the news is that they're based on. And that's what I was about to say is, is he's educating a class of people to see, to look at the news. Do you know what he, by the way, we, we went to the, uh, the, uh, the rally... Uh, oh, uh, oh, the, the oh, Stuart oh, Colbert Stewart. rally. Yeah, huh? And you know what? Nobody got except me, of course, because you know I'm. This is uh, obviously self-congratulatory. It was a, it was a, uh, a medieval mystery play updated. <laughs> it absolutely was. I was looking at the structures, and it absolutely was. Back in the uh, in, in medieval times, there was a, a play called Mr. Ill-Intentioned and Mr. Well-Intentioned. Mr. Ill-Intentioned uh, consorted with uh, prostitutes and gambled and drank, and at the end, he went to hell. And Mr. Well-Intentioned, of course, who, you know, hung out with really boring people. <laughs> and in the end, he went to heaven. Uh -huh. And that was the pattern of what they did on that stage, awesome. was that, was that uh, Stuart was the moral character, and, mm -hmm. uh, and Colbert was uh, the guy in, you know, enthralled to, uh, to paranoia and panic and, uh, and um, uh, xenophobia and all the rest of it. And he was dragged off the stage. He'd, it was a big battle. He was dragged off the stage. He died, and he was dragged off the stage. And it was, leave it to those guys to make a medieval mystery play hip. The squarest form on the on the earth, and and they managed to get you know a half million people live. I think it's the largest theatrical event in American oh theater history. Oh my god! Oh my god! It was a play. About that. Right, right. It wasn't right. a comedy show. It was a play. I love the fact that uh, he was playing a fictional character. Colbert's playing a fictional character. I, but I'm also, I always love like to to go keep, to uh, uh, the fact that Cat Stevens was there. Yeah. Like that also goes to, to what you're saying too. Is here's the, the oppressiveness, but 
There's just so there's there an, uh, an awful lot going on there, and people thought hey, that, that they, they were setting something up politically because the elections were coming up. There was very little overt political content in it. They were really talking about how do you face the world? Do you face the world with paranoia and, and negativity and weirdness, or do you, you know, uh, do, uh, Stewart actually delivered the equivalent of a homily at the end of the thing. He says, mostly, in fact, we get along. You know, there are two lines approaching a, a, approaching a single lane in a tunnel, and we we don't kill each other as we make a single lane. You know, uh, we we don't uh, we mostly figure it out, and we've uh, spent so much time focusing on the things that uh, we're yelling at each other about. But but people can get along, and people can use rationality. And it's the first, it's the only time I've seen him be that sort of overtly, this is what I believe, kind of essay-ish. Because, you know, whenever you're a satirist and you actually start preaching, you're, you're, you're courting trouble. But he, oh, did, but he did it very gracefully, I must say. And it, and it, and it left everybody with, um, uh, there was a kind of rationality and kind of uh, peace at the end of uh, two and a half hours of pretty staggering entertainment. Right. But it was a medieval mystery play, and uh, and all the people who were looking at it as a political event missed what I thought was the real significance of it. They also missed the fact that it was a play. It was a play for one performance, but it was a play. Right. And and I think it was the largest live performance of a play, possibly in world history, <laughs> because you know it got to be amplified by jumbotrons. You know, we right. were so far away that. Uh, what was that like to be so far away? It was well. We watched it on the jumbotron. You mm -hmm. know. But we—it was—it was a great group. It was a—it was a, a terrific, a, a terrific experience. I was very glad to be there. I mean, I was—we were way towards the, towards the back, but it was—it uh, was a tremendous, uh, a tremendous gathering, and we—and there was something. There was there was wisdom in, in this. It wasn't just a lot of fun. There was something about yes, a half million people can show up and get along and uh, not destroy them all and right. uh, and and walk away with uh, something something positive. Uh, so I thought that on some level that that was the largest expression of the Second City sensibility uh, in it, at its most positive that I had ever seen. You know what, I'm, I'm going to have to stop there because it can't, you, you, just, you just boxed it up for me. Well, uh, let's get some duct tape and uh, <laughs> take it to UPS. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeffrey. That was awesome. What, what a great thing. Thank you so much. Today's episode was sponsored by GoDaddy. Thinking about starting a new website? GoDaddy is offering one new or transfer.com for just $1.99 for the first year. Go to GoDaddy.com and enter the code ADDCOMEDY at checkout or click on the GoDaddy banner on our website, ADDCOMEDY.com. Hello, ADD Comedy Podcast listeners. Dave Rozowski here. First off, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And second off, if you've ever wanted to take a class with me but thought, Gosh, I don't think I'll ever be around where David is. Know that you can now take the virtual class at iActing. Just check our website out, and there's a link there. Click on that link, and that will set you up. you got to do a little hunting, but I think that it's well worth it. We'll hear you in your ears. Bye. Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rozowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on ADD Comedy, you can visit our website at www.theaddcomedytour.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ADD Comedy Pod. If you're in the Los Angeles area and you're interested in taking a class with Dave, you can find that information at his website at www.davidrozowski.com. Sound services for the ADD Comedy Podcast was brought to you by Post Apocalyptic.